Hi, this is Mary Lou Martin, author of The Big Quit Survival Guide, and you're listening to Best for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Mary Lou Martin. Mary Lou Martin is a leadership strategist who works with people leaders to win the battle of attracting and keeping top performing employees. She's consulted and advised global leaders and business owners to create work environments that allow each individual to feel respected and appreciated so that they can engage and be fulfilled through their interactions and contributions. As a Fortune 50 senior executive, educational administrator, management consultant, and thought partner. She has a comprehensive experience in creating and delivering strategies that engage and retain top performers. Mary Lou graduated from the Women's Leadership Program at the Wharton School with honors and earned her doctorate in organizational leadership from Pepperdine University. When not working with people leaders, Mary Lou enjoys writing puppet scripts for the preschool church crowd who remain her toughest critics to date. Mary Lou Martin is based in Carmel, Indiana, soon to be Wyoming, and is here to talk about her book, The Big Quit Survival Guide, tools and tactics to attract the best, retain top performers, and nail the talent war. Welcome, Mary Lou. Thank you, Bill. It is a pleasure to be here. It's so great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Mary Lou, who's someone who influenced and inspired you? It was a question I often think of because I'm still thanking her to this day. She was a personal friend of mine in elementary school. Her name is Joanna. We had literally grown up together and have been lifelong friends and still are today. The backstory to what Joanna, I guess, has done and what what I'd like to share. As we grew up, I was always the one in charge. I was always the self-reliant one, the responsible one, very independent. I was always the one that everybody else looked to as a mentor. I always seemed to have it together. I was always the one that was just, oh, we want to do whatever Mary Lou does and we'll be good and life will be great. We've grown up with all of that apparent reputation for years. In my 20s, I got married. And life was wonderful for six years. My husband at the time, he was 34, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He passed away six months later. So here I am widowed at 27-ish, 28. And as expected, all of my friends came along beside me to lend my support. And Joanna was there as all the rest of them. In my very typical independent, self-reliant, I'm just fine attitude. I just insisted I really didn't need support. I'm doing okay. And I'm processing my grief privately by myself and life goes on, right? Well, if truth be known, It was really more about me keeping up this outward appearance that Mary Lou still has it all together, even in times of great tragedy. About a month or so after the funeral, Joanna took me aside and she said, Mary Lou, I know you're fine. You're always fine. You continue to appear fine, even through these difficult circumstances. And in my arrogant, prideful way, I'm thinking, 
And now she's going to compliment me on how emotionally strong I am through all of this life-changing tragedy. Instead, she said to me, but Mary Lou, as your friend, I need to be needed by you. Please don't rob me of my desire to give something back to my friend. I have to tell you, Bill, that almost knocked the wind out of me. In that moment, she gave me one of the greatest life lessons I needed to learn. And that was the power of being vulnerable, the power of being real. I didn't always have it together, but I sure tried to carry that persona. I am so grateful to her today, decades later, for giving me seriously the gift of richer and more meaningful human relationships as a result. That's who's influenced me so much in my life. It was a very real moment. And I imagine once she said that, you were probably able to let down and just let out how much I did. that affected you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. In that sharing, which wasn't pretty, which wasn't having it all together. <laughs> it was real. <laughs> it was real. And yeah. it was all of those things. And you had someone who had not only the strength, but the awareness to say it's okay. That is a tremendous gift. Right. In this quest for perfection that I thought I needed to be on, just wasn't real. It was really preventing me from being even the leader that I was throughout all my career and connecting with people and so much of that, which has brought me to this book and working with leaders today. Had I not gone through that tragic circumstance and then had a friend who gave me that gift, I might have been a very different leader and one that needed to learn a lot maybe early on, but I'm grateful that I did as a result. I've enjoyed a very successful career leading people as a result of that being real and vulnerable. I just want to underscore a couple of things there. One is we want to be on a quest for the best, not a quest for perfection. We want to find the best in ourselves, the best in others, the best in yes. opportunities, and bring them together to create that magic that where we exponentially feel enriched by our ability to contribute. Second of all, it is these moments of private connection that bring out our best and allow us to experience the full range of whether it's professional or personal growth, being able to have people who we trust and people who we believe in and who I call people who are on our A-list, people who think more of us than we think of ourselves. Mm -hmm. She still was conveying to you, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, that she still thought incredibly highly of you, even mm -hmm. when you were feeling very weak and devastated and hurt inside by the loss right. of your husband. It would happen to anyone. She knew it was natural and she wanted to be there for you. She was the only friend who reached out and took me aside and told me what she told me. For that, I honor her. That's fabulous. Say, let's dig into this important topic that has yeah. so much misinformation and half-baked ideas swirling around discussions <laughs> about the big quit, about why people leave their jobs and why they stay. I'm gonna like to start with three fundamental truths that you bring out in the book I'll share them one at a time, and I'd like you to expand on each topic to give it a little more context and fill in the picture. Okay, sure. Truth number one is a good salary or total compensation package is not enough to keep top performers. The combination of rewards and respect have to account for the responsibility each person is assigned. 
Why is that a truth? That is a truth, Bill, because of the very nature of the paradigm shift today that has taken place about employee and employer engagement. I'm going to give you an example. There's been a huge mind shift in thinking, and I like to say this is no longer our grandfather's workplace. Here's what I mean by that. My grandfather years ago, he went to work, he worked for the Union Railroad, and it was all about the job, the stability, the income, the reputation of having a great job. My grandfather looked with pride upon that job, and all day, hours that were horrific in circumstances that maybe weren't the finest, but was so committed to that employer. As a result, the 40-year, 50-year tenure was rewarded and it was this ongoing relationship. What's happened is since this pandemic in particular, but this has been building up for years and years, this whole approach to I like to think workers, of the pandemic as a catalyst for facilitating things that were already in the making. You're absolutely right. What this big quit explosion was as a result was you take up this pented command and control type of environment that employees were subjected to for years and years. And it really was. If you don't like it, leave. I'm the boss. I'm in charge and go get another job. Well, it wasn't so easy to get another job like it is today when literally you can open your email and you're going to have five to 20 solicitations from headhunters to click here and you're in. But when we looked at now, what's changed is you take this pented up command and control. You add a little mix of how fragile the realization of life really was. Many people lost loved ones and relatives during the last couple of years to the pandemic. It was this stark realization of fear, really, of fragility of life. Then you sprinkle in a little bit of this experience of working remotely, if possible, working from home, and you combine all that, bam, people said, wait a minute, I am not about showing up and making a commitment, selling my soul to the employer to just have all these things that work gave my grandfather. Instead, I want a life. Now, what I mean by that is I'm going to curate a life that I want to live, my best life. Now, work will be a little slice of that life, and that particular work will fit into my definition of how I'm going to be able to engage. To your point, Bill, your question is just the money, the benefits, the rewards. What we're finding in the last 20 months or so, that answer is no. People have purposely walked away from a high level of a reward structure for the perks and all those things for the benefit they want in return, which is mental wellness, psychological safety, emotional security. They're saying life's not worth it. I am not going to be putting out if I'm not getting that in return. Here's the second truth that I'd like you to respond to. That is that leaders can't focus solely on top performers to the exclusion of others, the working warriors who show up as dependable, competent, and essential to the operation of companies. They don't get as much attention as the extremely productive or the extremely disruptive, but they're still essential and can't be overlooked. 
Yes, that is so very true. I have coined a phrase, beware of the silent requirements. Well, there is a lot out there about quiet quitting, which I'm sure we can touch on. But as a leader, I've got to be careful of looking at my top performer and risking two things. One, I am unconsciously loading requirements onto these top performers. It can come as simple as something like this. I have a top performer that was reporting to me for about four years. Her name was Susie and she was in the aerospace industry. I was there as a leadership consultant running a team, helping to grow these particular new leaders coming in. Susie was a top performer. And when we were hit with cutbacks and everybody was doing more with less, all of that, it was so easy for me to say to Susie on more than one occasion, oh, Susie, if you have just a minute, would you mind overlooking just this one pager? It's quick. I I know if I give it to someone else, it's going to take them two weeks. You're so good at this. You do that, it starts to become a death by a thousand paper cuts. Now, that's okay if I am also raising the reward payback and the respect because right now I have way overweighted these requirements and can you see how unconsciously it can happen now top performers adding like the straw that breaks the camel's back you got it you got it here's what a top performer will typically say oh no problem because they're the doers they'll jump in and do it the problem is they're human beings first and any human being who is feeling unjustified and over you that's going to stop but The other challenge with a top performer is that we will never really know many times why a top performer leaves. Here's truth number three that I'd like you to expand upon. Yes. While it has been widely known for years that people are often quitting a job they love, you have to take it a step further to the experience that they are quitting, the negative feelings that they are experiencing as part of that. It's expressed as pent-up frustrations micromanage the inflexible environment. They feel excluded, disrespected, unfulfilled, and undervalued. That's what they're quitting in the relationship. It's not just the manager's relationship. The good news about this, I think, is that these things can be changed. These are modifiable behaviors within the context of a work relationship. Isn't that a critical thing for people to hear right now and start to reflect and evaluate within their work relationships? Yes, Bill, that is a huge insight and part of the grassroots work I keep doing today and bringing this realization to the forefront, particularly in a small business or in any size corporation, really. We have got to start looking at employee engagement, not as a bolt-on not as an afterthought, not just get them on board, get them through a good training program and have a nice life. Those days are over. Bill Gates said, you take 20 of my best people, there goes my business. What I find is leaders until the pandemic, I guess if the good can come out of the pandemic, we're going to see a much more productive workplace, happier employees, because we're both giving and taking to make this relationship work again. But we have got to look at employee engagement just as intently as our sales figures, as our operational metrics, as our finance health, 
And we really can't just let the people thing take care of itself. It won't. So yes, how that human being is feeling every day is that role of the leader to know how to go about asking and do something about it because it's just not going to happen on its own for sure. The other big danger with top performers, once a top performer leaves, it's a domino effect. Yes. These are people that their peers are looking to and thinking, oh, well, if Bill's out of here or, whoa, if that's the way they're treating Bill, I'm gone too. And it it's a, a reevaluation very, in a negative light. Yes, very and much business so. leaders are making attempts to staunch that domino effect, to staunch that negative momentum by doing things like employee engagement surveys and exit interviews. So they get a right. read on what people want and need to be satisfied and are willing to stay. From yes. your perspective, how effective are those tools in identifying potential employee retention issues or needs? Yes, great question, Bill. They're well-intentioned for sure. There can be some gain, but when you're really looking at the individual and how that individual is feeling and what that individual needs about that job, you're not going to garner that so widely through a mass employee survey. I'm not a big fan of the yearly employee engagement survey, even though people say they're anonymous. It's, well, as soon as you put in your employee number, okay, do they track it? I don't know. The point is, that's the real scuttlebutt. People are saying they can identify me by even my geography and my divisions. Or IP number. Right. I'm not a big fan. You're a proponent of stay interviews. How are they presented? What are a few examples of questions that are asked? Yeah, I think the stay interview, although it's not ideal, I call it the cold, warm, hot approach. I would say employee surveys are probably on the colder side. The stay interviews are probably in the warmer vein. And what a stay interview is, is talking one-on-one with the people that are still with us that you want to keep and looking into questions like, what is it that's going well for you here? What is it that you want to do further to develop your skills here? It's really getting into a one-on-one. The problem with some of that is you could go ask a question like, what's your dream job and how is this working? In the book, I said, well, what if they come back with, I want to be a rock star and I want to play guitar. (laughs) Okay, this is a shipping organization. (laughs) The point is, question's nice. But what am I going to do with it? Many managers who I shared this with, uh, and I introduced it to about two dozen people. I said, what do you think of state interviews? Are you doing it? No one was doing it. They started asking a lot of questions about, well, what do you call it? You don't want to call it a stay interview to the right. people you're inviting it to because that signals a lack of confidence or that something may be wrong. How do you see them presented effectively so that it becomes something that's introduced in the normal course of manager check-ins or one-on-one. First of all, you don't formally coin the phrase, we're having a stay interview meeting, Bill, Friday at two. Be prepared to come and share what you like about your job. Okay, no. It's a non-event. What I mean about that is, for example, I'm going to have a one-on-one with you. It's our regular one-on-one, whether it be weekly, monthly, whatever. I train folks in the book to just subtly walk into the kinds of questions like, let's go to those rewards and that respect level that we were just talking about. I said, Bill, 
Think of your job this past week as a scale. All the things you've been doing that you've been putting out there and working on and requirements that you're meeting, how are you feeling about that scale being balanced? Are the rewards that you're getting coming back, does that feel balanced? Where is it too light? Where do you feel it's balanced? More importantly, what's the respect you're feeling? I might have to help them with that thought. For example, if I said, what can I be doing more of, Bill, to purposely show and demonstrate respectful behaviors as you're doing this work? Now, not I'm not talking about human civility. We're not going to bully and yeah, I, I, that's the ticket to get in to be human beings. But I'm talking about demonstrated work actions that I could be doing differently. Let me tell you about two people that I had asked this very question to. Sally and Leroy. I was asking them this very question. I said, as I'm working together with you as a thought partner, what is it that would be most respectful to you? Very interesting, different responses. Here's the example. Sally said to me, well, Mary Lou, I'm new in this industry. Again, this is healthcare systems industry. And she said, one of the things that would be so respectful of me would be, could I just get minutes to check in with you just every morning? Could we have a five minute, hey, if I have a question, I can get it answered. And that would be amazing that you would give me just that comfort of having checked in just five minutes. And if I don't need it, I don't need it, I'm good. But just to get on your calendar, that would be amazingly respectful. Because the reason I left my last job was I never heard from my leader Unless I was doing something wrong and I had tried to get responses back to ask questions and I never got a response. I felt so disrespected. I thought, okay, great. The trap I could have fallen in there was, okay, that's how employees define respect. When I asked Leroy, that same question. He said, Mary Lou, I've been around a little bit longer in the industry. I feel like I've got my feet wet. The best behaviors that you could show me in terms of respect, give me my marching orders, communicate clearly, and then let me fly. Let me go. Just let me go out there and do it. If I need it, I know we'll have our regular one-on-ones once a week. That's good. But my biggest fear, my concern of not being respected is to be micromanaged. Now, do you see the lesson in that, Bill, and what I'm trying to help leaders get? We cannot just make assumptions that respect means this. Okay, yes, it means that, but to only that employee. The other trap I see leaders falling into is they exhibit examples of respect in the way they want to be respected. We've all heard the golden rule. I call that the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. Exactly right. (laughs) Do unto others as you have done unto you, where the platinum rule, and I took this from Tony Alessandra, the platinum rule is do unto others as they would have done unto them. There you go. Unless I'm engaged with a human being one-on-one and having that targeted, specific, personal conversation, how am I going to know as a leader what that person needs? My byline to this is you can, and I see, oh my goodness, the money being spent. We've tried everything as organizations. Even now, I crack up because when we were all talking about coming back to work, coming back to the office, I still see organizations 
organizations trying to entice people with bagels, craft brews, and foosball game. <laughs> it didn't work to begin with. What makes you think this is going to work now? The point is, you cannot solve an individual issue with an organizational solution. And Perfect. that's why There's we such a keep... mismatch to that. Yes. People take the easy route because they're looking for the wrong signals yes. that they're on track. They want to check off items as if they're done rather than build the strength of the relationship, which doesn't have a KPI. Absolutely right. New leaders are never trained in this. Here's the downfall. You know that. This is nothing new. You do very well as an individual contributor, right? You've spent a couple of years, a couple of months putting widget A and widget B together. Whatever it is you're doing, it doesn't matter. On Friday afternoon at two o'clock, you get tapped on the shoulder and you say, hey, Bill, you're going to lead a team of people starting next Wednesday. You've just set that person to go from hero in that job they had to zero in the job you just put them in leading people. I want to ask you, you've come up with a way to show an equation and it's a relationship built on requirements. It's the three R conversation, which is built on requirements, rewards, and respect. Yes. It's based upon what psychologist Frederick Herzberg in the 50s and Abraham Maslow yes. came up with. It's a really interesting and useful way of thinking about it. Would you share the basics of the model with me so that people could take this away and start to use it? And of course, learn more from the book and from contacting you to get even more expert help with it. Share what the fundamental relationship is between those three R's, please. Yes, absolutely. I want you to think of a teeter-totter type scale. Let's picture this. So you've got a fulcrum in the middle, a board across that fulcrum, and that's going to represent our scale. The day you take a job, you were handed a bucket of requirements. Now in that bucket, which is now sitting on one side of that scale, that requirement bucket could include direct requirements. And those are the things that you can read on the job description, whether you're going to be making sales calls, whether you're going to be serving customers, whether you're going to be taking apart machinery, whatever it is, your direct job requirements are, that's partly now in your bucket. However, in addition to the direct requirements, every employee is going to add their indirect or their personal requirements. Now, what I mean by that would be in order to get to this job, I have an hour in order to be at the team meeting that's required on Thursday afternoons at four. I can't attend my kid's soccer game. It's all of these direct and indirect. I want you to think of that requirements bucket sitting on the left side. That's the first R. On the other side of the scale is the next R, and that bucket is labeled the rewards. Now, I want you to think of rewards as things you can tangibly take, put in your pocket. For example, your paycheck. It might be a bonus sign-on. It might be a commission structure. It might be a healthcare package. It might be a college tuition benefit. It might be a company car. It might be a training program. All of those things you're tangibly getting off the table and putting in your pocket. That's what's filled now in your rewards bucket. Okay. So Think about where you are in a job right now. So far, you've got your requirement bucket on the left. You've got your reward bucket on the right. It takes what, a little bit of time. What could possibly be? That sounds like it's more the description <laughs> of most companies. 
Right. Life is pretty good, right? And I'm hoping my rewards have balanced my requirements and I'm okay. Here's the kicker. And why is it the kicker? Because people are human beings first. Now that final bucket lands right next to the rewards, and that's called respect. To what degree do I feel valued here? To what degree do I have autonomy? Am I showing up, doing my best work? Am I being included? Do I have purpose? Am I fulfilled? Oh, hello. The news feeds are filled with this issue today because people are leaving despite the reward bucket. Now, here's the tapes that you get playing in people's head, and I'll give you an example. I had a very good colleague that I'd worked with for years. Her name was Sandy. Sandy worked in a Southern California area, just south of Los Angeles, and she worked in the film industry. Now, Sandy had a very high reward bucket. She had a lot of work she was doing, and her rewards were very high. Her respect bucket was just about empty. Sandy would say to me something like, I hate this job. I get knots in my stomach every time I go into work. I don't even want to work there. But where am I going to go and make this kind of money? Where am I going to go and keep my health care package that she needed for her disabled son? I'm stuck. Now, will she stay at this job? She's a 50% flight risk because all it takes is someone else to come along with a real rich respect bucket, but she is not engaged. And here's what I want to throw in a thought, Bill, about quiet quitting. We're hearing this all over. Quiet quitting is the employee taking it upon themselves to balance this 3R scale. If those rewards and that respect isn't at least meeting the requirements you're asking me to do, I'm going to calibrate it by myself. And, and I that's won't where many companies get into trouble because they don't recognize that by their absence, the employees are stepping in to fill the void and they're doing it in ways that aren't what everyone is in everyone's best interest. Correct. Correct. Now, I want to give you another example of how this scale plays out. This is an example about a guy named Jim that I had also worked with year after year. And this was a small startup company. All right. So they didn't have the deep pockets to offer all of these immensely rich tangibles. They didn't have stock options and a 401k and a company car. They offered a decent wage and they offered a few perks, but nothing like a big corporation could offer. In his particular job, he was a graphic artist working at a startup company. He had a list of requirements that were robust, right? We wear many hats in a startup. The rewards, they met the requirements, but the respect was off the chart. Here's what his feedback was. Mary Lou, I'm not going to get rich right now at this job. In fact, I'm still keeping my barista's job here to make my car payment. But you know what? These people treat me like gold. I have never been so fulfilled, so happy. I've never been so excited about getting up and going to work. I don't even know when I'm working and I don't even know where the hours go. I just love it here. Now, is he at a risk? Perhaps if someone can come along with a reward package, that's going to be even more. But 
what's interesting about this example is people today are giving up so much of that reward for more of the respect because mental health, psychological safety, all those great things are more important to them. A lot of people have had their eyes open to the fact there's this third bucket in balance. Some get very anxious and say, I don't know how we're going to compete with companies that offer respect to the employee. And other business leaders say, I'm so excited because all we have to do is look at our relationships and improve them. Make sure that we give the individual attention, understand what their needs are and treat them like a human so that it really makes a difference. They're excited because they say, we're going to retain our best people and find that as a way to attract even stronger team members. That's exactly right. The last time I checked, Bill, respect was still free. For those who have been looking to have people work for them because of golden handcuffs, because they pay a high salary and say, well, we could get away with treating people with less respect because we pay such a high salary. Where else are they going to get that? Mm -hmm. Those days are limited because the options and opportunities for others to find other work online and work remotely are never going away. There are always going to be companies that say, we want to attract the best contributors for these roles, and we're going to treat you well and show you that your contribution matters. That's a powerful message to send for any organization. I remember in the book, you talked about an example of a manager that said, oh, I've got to pay attention to people and really let them know we appreciate their contributions. So we Mm -hmm. had a recognition ceremony of the month and the first person up came up and was totally surprised. The manager called from a stage with all the department members there and brought her up on stage. She looked like she was so uncomfortable, just squirming to get away. And he made sure that she gave a speech and she said it was really the team that did it. And she came up to him afterwards and says, oh, boss, I appreciate the intent of what you did, but you have to understand, I never want that to happen again. And so the manager thought to himself, okay, we can't do that. So the next month, he just gives a gift certificate to another employee that had knocked it out of the park. That employee felt totally disrespected because he thrived on the kind of attention and recognition of his peers. He was thinking that he might win it that month and started outlining his acceptance speech. And all he got was a gift certificate. What a disaster. Emailed. Emailed to him. (laughs) Right. Emailed to him. Right. Right. And again, that's the point. You've got to know your people. I'm going to insert something here that's so challenging. Our listeners right now might be thinking, well, this sounds great. I don't have time. I don't have time to figure this out. I don't blame you. I wouldn't have time to figure out all these theoretical things things either. Here's a good example. So if I just simply tell a leader, get to know your people, that's really important. A leader's not going to do much with that. Well, what do you mean get to know my people? I have as part of the help and the tactics and the tools, a checklist that you can actually go down, print out and use for every individual employee What's their recognition preference? What's their favorite junk food? What's their anything that would matter that I could beef up and use as a a relationship builder? Don't just tell me, get to know your people. Well, does that mean I just go call them up every two days and go, how's it going? We've got to help leaders not have to struggle with figuring this out. As you said, you want to get very concrete about this, not abstract in general. Specific and concrete lets you know that you're on the right track. Mary Lou, speaking of that, I want to know if you have time for the My Quest for the Best lightning round. Absolutely. My question is, as we talked earlier, 
And you talked about your friend Joanne as someone who had a great impact on your life growing up. When you were a teenager, Mary Lou, what was a song that you loved? I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. <laughs> Wait, how does that go? I I, you want me to sing it? Oh, I yeah, I tell you something. When you think about your business with the thought partnership and the consulting work that you do, what are two or three KPIs that you track to see that you're making progress in your business? Yes, one is very tactical. I track my clients' overall retention rates. If my goal is to empower leaders to do what they need to do to keep their people, I should start seeing that in the clients that I'm working with. And we are. So that's encouraging. Certainly working at retention rates before and after. The second one is one very close to my heart. It's the leaders' feedback survey, the behavioral tactics that they're being surveyed with of the people that they're managing. Many organizations will do what they call some quick snapshot surveys on just how is my leader doing kind of thing. I look at those very seriously because here's reasons why. When we had done some research a number of months ago, we looked at a group of leaders across the country in all organization sizes that scored very low in employee feedback around interpersonal skills. I had the opportunity to interview a couple hundred of these people, just a quick phone survey, an email survey, and I just asked one question, why do you think your scores are lower in just working with people. I had two themes and they surprised me, one not so much. The first theme that came out was, I don't have time to be nice. I'll let it just sit there. <laughs> I don't have time to be nice. I'm too busy hiring, firing, meeting metrics. I don't have time. I understand that. That's why I wrote the book in the way I did. Leaders don't even have time to read a book on how to lead people. They need tactical hands-on lists, checklists, scripts. Tell me what to say, how to say it. Don't just give me the tactics. So that was one of the impetus for me to write the book. The second reason bothered me more than any, and I had my suspicions. The second reason was I'm just modeling the behavior of my boss. And I thought, well, there you go. As a human being, we are all going to be catered to believing or we have unique needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And one of those very strong needs is the need for emotional safety. Well, if I have a leader who's a toxic idiot and I want to keep my job, before you know it, I start to take on that same behavior because I'm hoping this leader will like me, identify with me, keep me in the in-group, and I'll keep my job. We have got to break that cycle. We're seeing it now. The employee who's unwilling to put up with that toxicity, they're voting with their feet. That's exactly what I'm seeing. Those are my two main KPIs. If I can help people improve those metrics, it will help the organization. Who in your field inspires you? I would have to say in my field of the research that I have done, the person who does inspire me the most is Abram Maslow. I think What's he one just... insight that most people don't know or haven't gained from Maslow? You can attribute anything you do, you can attribute anything your employees are doing somewhere on Maslow's scale of hierarchy of needs. It takes the mystery out of defining why in the human behavior. In the last year or so, what's the most important habit, belief, or routine that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? It's a physical one, and it has been, I have stopped ignoring 
the power of stretching and increased mobility. What I mean by that is I've always taken care of cardio and diet and general exercise. Just recently, I have become a big fan of just stretching every morning for a half an hour of just keeping the hips flexed, the legs, the posture. I'm quite tall and I'm always looking down or we're at computers all day and all of these things. I have come to appreciate the value of stretching. I no longer ignore it. I've got it in my routine. Fabulous. Well, you have stretched our minds and helped make us more flexible at how we think. The quiet quit, about how we think about retention, how we think about relationships, and using that 3R conversation that you shared with us, where you look at the requirements in one bucket on the left, and on the right, you have two buckets. One of them's the bucket of rewards, and the other's the bucket of respects. And I use that as a plural because it comes both directions, and people could put in both positives and negatives into each bucket. It's fascinating to think about. It's a simple tool. It works so well and has given every listener a lot to think about and a lot to apply. For these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me today on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It has really been a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, Mary Lou Martin, before we go, tell me, where is it that people can find out more about you and your work online? Yes, there's two places. I'm very active on LinkedIn, and there's my website as well. It's Big quitsurvivalguide.com. We're going to link to bigquitsurvivalguide.com. We're going to link to your LinkedIn profile as well as other social media, as well as places to buy the book. Now, you mentioned a couple times in our interview that you have a resource that's available for people who have who want to learn more. Can you share what that resource is for our listeners? Absolutely. As a special thank you, the listeners can go to the website and they can click on a tab at the top that says Survival Kit. At the end of each chapter in the book, I have provided anywhere from one to four, a five or so actual tactical tools. And if you click on this Survival Kit, it'll ask you for a password. And the password is Survival. Well, Mary Lou, we're going to link to that Big Quit Survival Toolkit, and we're going to put the password to allow people to read it and print it to make it easy for them right in the show notes. Mary Lou Martin, author of the Big Quit Survival Guide, Tools and Tactics to Attract the Best, Retain Top Performers, and Nail the Talent War. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.